Good morning. Uh, my name's Helen Jackson. I'm married to Tim, and we've been members of the St. Barnabas family here for 20 years. I know. <laughs> Time off for good behaviour. It's, uh, it's really good to be able to add my welcome to Ian's this morning. It's lovely to see you all here. Uh, so let's pray before we start. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope of Advent, for the promise of your light. I pray that whatever I may say, that your word will be heard and the light of your love will open our hearts to you afresh this morning. Amen. So you'll be aware that our theme uh, this Advent and Christmas is light, uh, thinking about Jesus as the light of the world, looking back to Jesus coming to earth as a baby and looking forward to his return in glory. And our theme today is living in the light. At the moment, we're living in that time that sits between Jesus coming to earth, dying on the cross and rising again to redeem us and give us the promise of eternal life. And the time when he'll come again in glory and all of creation will finally be made whole and perfect. So we're living in a time when we have the promise of redemption, the certainty that we're free, but we're still living in a world that is far from perfect. I like to think of it in terms of my own life. Now, this is going to be an illustration which is um, unsound and politically incorrect on a great many levels, um, but maybe it'll just be more memorable. Um, when, I, when I lived with my parents, my father was a wonderful man and I loved him dearly. Um, he was quite keen on DIY, though not that gifted at it. Um, he was always fixing things around the house, and as a result, we lived in a house where shelves just dropped off the walls, knobs came off in your hand, and we were just accepted that that is what life was like. Life, life before Jesus, we lived in a house that was flawed, and there seemed to be no hope, no prospect that anything would ever come good. Now, when Jesus came into the world, he brought the promise of salvation and the ultimate bringing of the world to perfection. Similarly, but not, obviously not in the same way, because my husband is not Jesus, which is where this whole illustration falls down. But when I met my husband, Tim, also wonderful and dearly loved, everything changed. We live in a house where everything works. Everything stays on the wall. If things are not quite right, he just puts them right. It never occurs to him that he can't do it. When we had our kitchen fitted, the fitter would come every day and put stuff in. And uh, at the end of the day, it's sort of, I'd think, well, that looks reasonably okay. And Tim would come home from work and he would take out everything that the fitter had done and put it back in again perfectly. The fitter was thrilled to come in every day and find everything was like two inches to the left of where he left it. And when the one cupboard he hadn't moved dropped off the wall after about two weeks, Tim put it back and it has stayed there for 18 years. 
So now my eyes have been opened, and I believe in my heart that it is possible to have a house where everything works. Except that even in our house, there is an imperfection. And all through the winter, the electricity trips out almost every day for reasons that Tim cannot get to the bottom of. I put a post on Facebook asking if anyone knew an electrician who could help us, and all I got was a comment from someone saying, if Tim can't find the problem, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> but the difference is that unlike my childhood, I now live in a life of hope where I dare to believe that there is a domestic infrastructure of true perfection achievable one day. That as we're promised in Revelation 21, a time will come when everything will be perfected and made new. The electrics will not trip out and all pain and sorrow will be washed away. Everything will work. But for now, we live in a world which is flawed and broken, but we have glimpses of that perfect world. We can live in the light with Jesus right now and know the hope of his glory. Now, if anything I've said so far is in any way unclear, um, do think about coming to the Alpha course, uh, which starts on the 28th of January. Um, Tim and I have been involved for the last few years, and it's just been really good fun, and there is great food and great company, and you'll be glad to know that Tim will be there to answer any questions uh, more clearly than I can. Um, but anyway, to turn to our passage, um, we're looking at a passage from Ephesians where Paul is writing to them about how to live in the light, to live as new Christians in a still broken world. We're looking at Ephesians 5, 8 to 16. Uh, I don't know what the page number is. How horrific. Um, but do uh, grab a Bible or turn to your app and the passage will also appear on the screen. It's Ephesians 5, verses 8 to 16. Uh, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Amen. So, as I said, this passage is part of a letter from Paul to the Ephesians, which gives a great overview of how they are to live and worship as Christians. He's calling them to be different from their old selves, different from the people around them. These particular verses come in the middle of a chapter which talks about morality 
about living in obedience to God's way. In the verses immediately before these pas- this passage, Paul counsels us against any form of impropriety, impurity or greed. He's calling people to turn from a life of sin to a life of goodness, from darkness to light. For some people, that's all they expect church to be about, all about morality, guilt and judgment, about being made to feel that you've fallen short. But if that was what it was all about, it would probably be a bit like this. This? It would be a bit like this. Well, I can assure you that uh, we will not be holding an audit or uh, sending the offering round a second time, as far as I know. Um, but that, that is how some people think of church, as somewhere where it's all about obeying the rules and pointing the finger when people fall short. But even though Paul is, of course, encouraging us not to sin, living in the light is not simply about obeying the rules. Our sin is already completely forgiven. Jesus' death has wiped them away so that when God looks at us, he just sees us as his dearly loved children. So what is Paul saying specifically to us here in this passage? Let's look at verses 8 to 10. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Paul is not talking about a code of conduct. He's talking about our very identity as children of God. We've gone from being people whose identity was sinful and dark to being people of light who are no longer bound by their sin, even though we're still living in a sinful world. We are light. There is a light within us, the light of the Holy Spirit, which comes from God. And we're called to live out that light. We're to live from the inside out, if you like, rather than living from the outside in. That means not just seeking to be obedient, but being true to the identity that he gave us. In fact, what Paul is saying is that if we're true to God and walk with him as his children, then we will be naturally obedient. That will be the fruit of our walk with God because the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We just need to focus on living as God's children, living in the light, and the rest will follow. So... What, what does that mean? Um, what does it mean to find our identity as God's child within us? To live life from the inside out. I'm reading a book at the moment called Let Your Life Speak by uh, a Quaker, Palmer J. Parker. 
Um, he was expected to have an illustrious academic career. And people told him that one day he would definitely be president of one of America's major universities. So uh, no pressure then. Um, but things started to go wrong for him when he was fired from his very first academic job. And they continued to go wrong until eventually he found himself living in a Quaker community in a wood making handicrafts rather badly. And this led to a time of some uh, personal introspection. He had a deep conviction that he needed to live out God's calling on his life, but he describes how he was constantly looking for that call outside of himself. When his career foundered, he looked outwards to an idealized view of Christianity and so decided that his calling must be to be a mixture of Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa. And funnily enough, that didn't work either. But he was doing what we all do. We try to make plans. We do what we believe is the right thing, to work the problem ourselves, and to do anything, in fact, but leave space for God to speak to us, to work within us. Palmer says this, I had to discard the idea that calling comes from a voice external to ourselves, a voice of moral demand that asks us to become someone we are not yet, someone different, someone better, someone just beyond our reach. It's a notion that made me feel inadequate to the task of living my own life creating guilt about the distance between who I was and who I was supposed to be, leaving me exhausted as I labored to close the gap. He realized that God's calling is not a goal to be achieved, but a gift to be received. Now, I wonder how many of us think in those terms, feeling guilty and wearing ourselves out about the difference between who we think we are and who we think maybe we ought to be when neither of those perceptions comes from God. When I gave up work a year ago, I thought to myself I would devote myself to social justice, social outreach projects. And I still do feel very much that that is the area that I'm to go into. But one of the most challenging experiences I've had over the last year was when I went to visit a project run by a church in the north of Cambridge that was helping the long-term unemployed to find employment. This is just the sort of thing I want to do, I said, and I turned up at 9.30, raring to go. I was quite surprised when they said I would be there till 1.30, but that wasn't a problem. I had all day. Uh, and it was a great, great project. The people running it were kind, patient, godly, and delightful. And there is no doubt they were really helping people. But the biggest problem for me, and it was completely my problem, was that by 11 o'clock, I was bored senseless. I was just bored 
senseless. And by 1.30, I was beside myself. I was doing what I felt I ought to feel called to do. But like Palmer Palmer, it didn't fit. I was trying to put a square peg into a round hole. I was living from the outside in. But if we go back to the passage, what Paul tells us to do in verse 10 is find out what pleases the Lord. We're not just to keep making up plans for ourselves. Living in the light means accepting that we're children of God and turning to him to find the answer. It means a life of intimacy with God, of spending time with him and listening for his voice. So I'm having to ask God who I am. Why has he given me a particular set of gifts? And why has he put me here? And why has he called me into a time of not having a job when I have such a low boredom threshold? And while I inch forward, I have to face another very hard truth. God is not depending on me, Helen Jackson, to save the world. In fact, God has already saved the world. There isn't a wrong in the world about which God will have to despair if I don't turn up to write it. That's not to say, of course, that he doesn't want me to be part of working his purposes out in the world. But if I let him down, I might have fallen short. But he is God. He will have it in hand. God wants me to live out my own unique identity because he loves me, because that is his gift to me. It's because living in the light living in his love, in intimacy with him, obedient to his ways and the identity he's given me is how I can thrive and find joy and fulfillment. My calling, whatever it is, is a gift to be received and not a goal to be achieved. And that doesn't mean by any means that walking in the light is easy that none of us will ever face anything difficult or choose a hard path. The job I left was one which gave me enormous joy and fulfillment for a season of many years, but it was enormously hard work on any number of levels. Palmer gives us the example of Rosa Parks, the lady who sat on the whites-only seat on a bus in Alabama and refused to move. Her role was foundational to the civil rights movement in America. And when she was asked why she did it, she said simply, I was tired. She wasn't physically tired. She was tired of living a life where the person that God made her to be was stifled, was unnecessarily constrained and limited by laws imposed on her by a white legislature. So how do we do this? Well, we come back to Paul in verse 10. Find out what pleases the Lord. Be prayerful. Seek the Lord's will. 
spend time with God and with other Christians regularly and steadfastly. Some of us were talking this week about how we actually found spending time regularly with God quite difficult. And we talked about maybe sharing that first cup of coffee of the day with God or talking and listening to God while we were walking or running or hoovering and just finding times in the day when you do things where you're not necessarily thinking about something else and just giving that time over to God and listening to him. Well, let's see if Paul has any more practical advice in this passage. Look at verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Paul seems to be going from the big picture to the uncomfortable detail now. Oh dear. If we're living in the light, if we're living holy for God, then we should have nothing that needs to be done in secret. Why would we mind what other people think if everything we do is pleasing to the Lord? Yes, right. The other day, um, I fully intended to go to the monthly prayer meeting, 8 o'clock on the first Wednesday of the month. I expect you were all there. Um, when it came to about 7.35, I just thought, oh, it's cold, I'm not in the mood, and I didn't tell anybody that I was definitely going to go. So I thought, I'm just not going. And immediately, the phone went, and a voice said, hello, it's Anne McLaurin. I was like, no. It's, it's the vicar. How does she do that? How does she know? Is she phoning everyone? What time did she start? But in fact, Anne was, was in Glasgow and hadn't realized the time. And as we talked, the time for leaving came and went. And I was able to tell myself that I didn't go because the vicar prevented me from going. <laughs> So, what did I take from that? <laughs> well, God is gracious, and I think he was saying, well, it probably wasn't the night for me to go. But I had already been looking at this passage earlier in the day, and I felt very strongly that he was also saying to me, I can actually see you, you know. So why do we behave differently if we think people are looking at us. It's the same reason that gets in the way all the time. We want to be in control ourselves instead of God. We want the security of being able to control what we do and how other people see us. We want to look the creator of the universe in the eye and pursue that fiction that we're on an equal footing. So instead of our saying to God, your will be done. 
we're hoping he'll say, do you know, whatever you want to do, that's just fine. But living in the light is not like that. It's about being who God wants us to be, out there, out in the light. And I think that calls for two things in particular. It calls for humility and hope. The humility to put ourselves second and to say, your will be done. And hope, hope in the promise that what God wants for us is way beyond what we deserve and what we've achieved. And instead of building our own security around ourselves, it requires us to put that aside, put our trust in God, in humility and openness. Pope Benedict, of all people, um, put it like this. The denial of hope in favor of security rests on the inability to bear the tension of waiting for what is to come and to abandon oneself to God's goodness. I found those words really challenging. The denial of hope in favor of security. How often do we settle for something pragmatic and comfortable, something secure, because dreaming big is too hard? One of the members of our PCC has a terrible habit of when we've made some decision we're all happy with, he'll say, doesn't that feel a bit safe? And we all twitch and go back to the drawing board. Who remembers our gift day for the building project? We needed £100,000 to finish the project. And this from a church which had raised £800,000 from within the church family already. So when Anne said, oh, well, we'll have a gift day and we'll raise the money that way, I think we all thought, well, she's quite new. Um, <laughs> and, and having the gift day will be something to do while we work out how to scale down the project to meet our resources. But that gift day raised £103,000. And people had all sorts of testimonies about how money had just appeared at the right time and enabled them to give. We had a cheque from a relative that just came through the letterbox at the right time. And so as a church, we abandoned ourselves to God's goodness and God took care of us. And this building, this wonderful building, is testament to us every Sunday of that moment. And of course, the other side of living in the light, living for Jesus in plain sight, as Paul suggests in verse 13, is that other people see us, see how we live, and see Jesus through us. Our living in the light is how God draws people to him, how he grows the kingdom. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So, we've come a long way from the Simpsons. And what are the things that we need to reflect upon in how we live in the light?
Are we spending time with God, allowing him to speak to us? Are we really living in intimacy with him, living from the inside out, trying to find our true identity in Christ and live that out obediently so that goodness, righteousness, and truth will follow? Or are we doing what we've decided we ought to do without listening to God as we go? Do we think it all depends on us? Are we living in plain sight? Or are we living one way for the cameras and another way when we think no one is looking? Are we living in humility and hope, abandoning ourselves to God's goodness? Or are we denying hope in favor of control and security? And finally, are we being a light to others? Or are we playing it safe, not thinking about times when we could be a good witness to others? I'll finish by reminding us of Jesus' own words from Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen.